Artificial intelligence is a system of replicating the past, and this is why history tends to repeat itself in the world of AI. When predicting the future of AI, you'd be surprised at how well the past predicts the future. Congratulations for investing in your family's future by joining us on the AI Parenting Podcast. We're a judgment-free community moving from screen time to quality time, and our motto is don't sedate, relate to create. And the purpose of our time today is to uncover the sedation around bias in Google search. You'll see how bias in search is similar to bias in library sciences, and how bias in search is different since Google is a private company rather than a public good like your library. Now, before I start, I would like to provide credit to Professor Savia Noble for her insightful book, Algorithms of Oppression, available on Amazon. When it comes to content moderation, I'm also gonna draw from Sarah T. Roberts' book called Behind the Screen. Today is the third piece of my Foundations of Artificial Intelligence series, a look into the history behind artificial intelligence and how this gets repeated today. Knowing the origins of the practical AI systems that we use every day will help you understand their strengths and weaknesses, and it will also help you predict where things will move in the future. So let's jump into it. The three topics that we will cover today are one, how bias moved from libraries to search, two, what happens when search moves from a public to a private good, and three, how you're creating a database of intentions. All right, let's go. So let's dive into the first one, number one. So how bias moved from libraries to search. Now in 2012, uh, Professor Safia Noble was dared by an academic colleague to search black girls on Google. And of course she was shocked with the result, which in 2012 was mostly pornographic images of black women. Now, this same story is repeated multiple times. In 2016, MBA student Rosalia did a Google image search for unprofessional hairstyles for work that returned only images of black women. And then when she did a search for professional hairstyles at work, it returned only images of white women. So another example is an image search for three White teenagers showed smiling teens playing sports while searching for three black teenagers or three brown teenagers showed three police mugshots. A black student tweeted about how Google mislabeled an image of him and his friends as two gorillas. So does this bias only exist inside Google search? Well, if we look at the history of libraries, we'll see similarly alarming results. When I went to school, like visiting a library meant asking a librarian uh, for a book related to a topic that I wanted to search. The librarian, usually a white woman, uh, understood the catalog better than I did, so she would usually write down a catalog and an index that I would then need to find on the library shelves. Well, when it came to these catalogs and indices, uh, there's three main systems that are used. One, the Dewey Decimal System, which was later replaced with the Universal Decimal System. And the third is the Library of Congress system that's still in use today in libraries. So library science was generally reserved for the most privileged in society. 
So it might not be surprising that the Library of Congress categories, like had books under categories um, such as illegal aliens, and only changed this to non-citizens and unauthorized immigration in 2016. What is surprising is that the House of Representatives actually overturned this, this change uh, only a few months later with the goal of duplicating the language of the federal laws uh, that were written in Congress. Now, it's very rare to have politicians rule on like library categories. I mean, who cares? But renaming illegal aliens crossed some political line. And it shows that this type of bias, even today, is still very prevalent and it still exists. And so um, there are many examples of this. In the 1970s, African Americans replaced the category Negroes, uh, and this was later replaced with Blacks in 2001. Mentally handicapped persons or retarded persons was replaced with people with mental disabilities in 2001. Uh, LGBTQ2 uh, plus content was categorized as sexual deviations until it was ca uh, changed to sexual minorities in 1972 to sexual persons in 2016. So what this means is that not only it's not only Google that has issues in searches, uh, but libraries as well. For example, the Library of Congress had racist category names for Jewish, Asian, and Black communities, and image searches on library databases yields similarly troubling results as what I've described with Google. Now, generally, these categories and search results reflect a larger bias within society, uh, but we also need to ask the question of their impact on people of color. Uh, for example, how will a black child see themselves when image results are mainly sexualized or mugshots? We can see that over time, due to political pressure, libraries made corrections to their categorization to use more politically correct terminology, such as people with mental disabilities, blacks, and sexual persons. Now, when Google was presented with the pornographic search results for black girls, they said that Google's not responsible for the search results. The results come from user choices that they do not control. So Professor Safia Noble asked, if Google's not responsible for the search results of black girls, then who is? Uh, Safia argues that most people see Google as a public utility, and this is very interesting. They see Google search as a public utility, like a service that we pay for with our taxes, like maybe they pay to maintain parks, for example. Uh, we often trust the results that we get from Google as the objective truth. However, as you've heard, Google's not a public utility. Since it sells advertisements, companies, industries, and even governments can pay for better rankings through ads uh, and search engine optimization. So we can think of the results of a Google search not as the truth, but as what some interested party wants you to know or wants you to find when you perform this search. The results are nearly impossible for regular citizens like you and I to change even when they cause harm. Uh, for example, 
Christo Georgiev uh, was labeled a serial killer by a Google search result since his name corresponded with a deceased convict. Uh, in response, a Google spokesperson said, well, organizing billions of entities in our knowledge graph requires that we use automated systems, and which often work well, but they're not perfect. Then the question is, who bears the responsibility uh, for people like Bristo who can't get a job because of these search results? Well, it's us. We bear that responsibility. This falls on the public through unemployment, or worse, the prison system. So another example of how search results are not objective um, reality is by searching for competitors of Google when they are not the dominant platform. In June of 2021, Google was fined $270 million in France for any competitive behavior for favoring their advertising network over others in the search results. And when we look at these and countless other examples, we see that search result manipulation is just merely another form of oppression used by those with the money and the resources to manipulate it. Uh, this helps the rich and it hurts our poorest and most vulnerable in society. Uh, what's alarming was not the image search results, but rather it was Google's corporate response. Um, their response was, well, sometimes unpleasant portrayals of sensitive subject matter online can affect what image search results appear for a given query. These results don't reflect Google's own opinions or beliefs as a company. And we strongly value a diversity of perspectives, ideas, and cultures. So racism doesn't represent your company values, but you won't be responsible for racist images that appear in your search results. By the way, um, the results for three black teenagers and three brown teenagers is relatively unchanged today, over five years later. Do you want to see? Let's see if I can bring this up again. So three black teenagers. So yes, many of the mugshot images, not all of them, some of them are still there, uh, but many of the mugshot images were removed, which is great. But if you search, uh, the search results are worse for three brown teenagers. So if I search three brown teenagers, it's all mugshots. And they're like not even brown. Like, I don't know. It, it's weird. Like, you're still getting mostly mugshots. Um, so, again, like this bias first reported in 2016 is relatively unchanged five, six years later. Now, when faced with an ethical argument like gender discrimination in results, uh, Google will often point to free speech so they don't need to follow the expectations associated with a public good or a public utility. Uh, yet the public treats the service like a public good and as a source of truth, as I had described, like you go to Google to find out the truth. Um, and you expect what it presents you is the truth, but it's often not the case. So how you're creating, how are you creating 
a database of intentions. So this is the this is the third and, and last part, which I think is an important thing because I've been looking for words to describe this uh, this term and database of intentions. I I love it. So John Battelle, who launched helped launched Wired and the Industry Standard described search as one of the most important cultural artifacts of our time, the database of intentions, the aggregate result lists of every search results, um, every click, every path taken as a result. It's a massive clickstream database of needs, wants, and desires that can be exploited for all sorts of ends. And we'll talk about some of the ends that it can be exploited for later. This fits very closely with what I've been referring to in terms of our artificial unconsciousness. Uh, this connection between what results you are shown and what you end up clicking on provides this detailed understanding of our unconscious desires and is why we often end up with certain search results or feeds or videos um, that are designed to trigger these desires. Uh, so, for example, when Safia looked into, well, why is porn ranking so high among the top search results for black girls? Uh, she found that online porn companies are ranking higher be by building SEO-optimized uh, porn pages that match specific fetishes. So it's giving some people exactly what they're looking for. Uh, the term is vague, so other results do not get as many clicks. The only way to fix this is to, say, generate enough media attention in order to force a change by Google. Like, hey, no porn on the first page of search results, please. Or it's to create SEO-optimized pages that look similar to the porn result, uh, but they direct them to something else. Could be like, hey, look at this page. Kind of looks like what you would expect from a porn page, but it's like, you know, this these kind of results really hurt uh, people of color, right? Like, and here's some things you should know. I don't, I don't know if that would work, but that would be one way to do it. And it goes to say that if we don't learn search engine optimization, or at least how to draw the attention of companies such as Google, uh, these results will not change. Like the example was the uh, three brown teenagers, like six years later, nothing's changed. Um, companies make money by being on the top of search results. So there has to be like, unless there's a financial incentive, um, these types of social just justice issues will likely always uh, rank lower uh, on any search results. I hope that's making sense. Now, Safia argues that Google should be broken up into multiple independent companies, uh, since it's exactly this merging of data that creates a very detailed picture of who we are. Uh, so. Of course, it's ironic that in 2015, around the time of her book being published, uh, Google combined the data from all of its different properties into a single merged database of effectively your desires. Uh, you probably saw this as the one account, all of Google campaign. Uh, and this included data from the online advertising platform, DoubleClick, uh, whose clients included 
Microsoft, General Motors, Coca-Cola, Motorola, L'Oreal, Apple, Visa, and Nike, meaning that most of your actions on web pages since 1995 have been added to your Google profile. Uh, for many, this was just another terms of service that we had to agree to. But for Google, this provided a history and an evolution of our desires over time. Professor Safia Noble um, argues that governments that choose to make the internet a public utility, say like water, need to also look at making certain internet services such as search public utilities as well. Otherwise, they will be introducing a public utility rife with racial and gender bias. So if you're going to offer internet for everyone, or you're going to make it a public good, you may want to look at offering search as a public good for all people as well. Because if you don't, and you go with the status quo, you will be introducing this bias directly to your population. Now, speaking of politics, uh, we've established that AI has a very hard time critical thinking. Uh, so content moderation often falls onto outsourced workers who use rubrics. Uh, and as UCLA professor Sarah Roberts, uh, whom I had the pleasure of interviewing in the past, who showed how these rules tend to bias towards allowing liberal perspectives while rejecting many others. Um, and this is interesting because a judiciary, a judiciary committee hearing uh, with a Google executive revealed that 99% of U.S. political donations from Google executives and employees were to Democrats. Uh, I'm sure many of you have also read this week just about the class action lawsuits by Donald Trump um, against big tech for the same types of bias. Uh, this should lead to some interesting discussions about political bias in big tech. And it'll be, of course, very interesting to see if this changes anything. But you can be rest assured that political bias exists in big tech. Now, like we said at the beginning, once we have a database of desires, it's very easy for it to be exploited for all sorts of ends be they financial, competitive, or political. Uh, this is another reminder why your data and your privacy is so important. You're volunteering your vote and your voice, and you won't have rights to have these uh, search results and rankings changed. When we see search results, maybe not don't see them as the truth, but see them as the question, What's the financial incentive for this to be at the top of the search result ranking? Who is the person or who is the company or who is the interest that wants this to appear at the top? And I think when you start to see search from this perspective of it's what it is because somebody wants it to appear at the top, it'll be much more clear as to why you see certain types of results. And sometimes when you see like really terrible bias, when you search certain cultures, uh, you'll start to see why. You'll start to see why this starts to appear as the top result and why, like there's a financial, there's almost always a financial incentive. Um, it could be like a newspaper just trying to to sell like some kind of uh, some kind of thing or it could be a uh, like a, a porn company that is trying to 
make that result appear to the top. If you understand what is the financial uh, incentive, you'll be less surprised at the result and you'll have much more understanding as to why, why these results keep appearing uh, at the top of these. And yes, of course, these results, these haven't changed, but the difference is we have more recourse uh, when it comes to a public utility like the categorization of the Library of Congress uh, cataloging system to require changes or to make changes. Um, but when it comes to a private good such as Google, we don't have those types of rights. So it it's going to be more of a challenge, like you have to use maybe media pressure or public pressure um, to achieve your ends. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you for joining us on the AI Parenting Podcast. If you want to get more information about how to move from sedation to relation and to creation or how to move from screen time to quality time, check us out on AIparenting.live. You can also sign up to be an AI Parenting Insider in order to get frequent tips and discounts on some of our different courses available. We are very excited about our next session with Iris Chen. She is the author of Untigering, and she's going to be talking a little bit about how unschooling is done, a different approach to using consent in schooling. So we will see you all during the next podcast. Thank you. Speak to you soon.